Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm a man who carries around a gun and goes around whacking people. That'd be TJ. Uh, Hello, welcome to Serious Film People, the podcast where we discuss and analyze films nominated for Best Picture in a given year. We have done it. We reached the end, perhaps mercifully, of the 1985 series. This week, we will be talking about Witness. Witness me. Different movie. Oh yeah, uh, I, I forget. I didn't see that part when I was watching it this time. I was trying to. I was trying to place that together. Um, so, Witness, Josh, when had you? What, what did you know about Witness before we watched it this week? I knew that it starred Harrison Ford, that it was released in 1985, and that it featured Amish people. That was pretty much the extent of my knowledge. I think I knew there was a murder. Mm-hmm. Um, that's about it, though. The Harrison Ford murder Amish movie. Yes, I had seen a still uh, back like 10 years ago. I spent a lot of time on Reddit, like the movie subreddit and screenwriting subreddit. And I think on one of those two, there used to be like a picture of Harrison Ford with his fists up Mm. in Amish clothing uh, on like the sidebar of one of those subreddits. Uh, Him like, you know, about to throw fisticuffs. So that single frame was uh, pretty much the extent of my knowledge of the movie Witness before this week. All right. All right. Ken, what about you? What's your history with Witness? Almost identical to Josh. Okay. Uh, differences, I had seen clips from the movie. So I had seen individual scenes. For example, uh, as we'll talk a bit later, there's a there's a, a fight sequence as an Amish mm. man. He he breaks the rule of pacifism. Sure it's his and, rule. Um, I'd seen, I'd seen, I had seen that uh, moment uh, before. Um, and a few of the moments on the farm with uh, Kelly McGillis. The Irish uh, from Ohio Lucas must be different. Yes, no. <laughs> exactly. It's not. It's not our way, but it's my way. Yes. Bam. Uh-huh. Ah. Yes. Um, That's the Harrison Ford we know and love. <laughs> um. All right. So, witness directed by PJ. P- what's your history? Oh, you thank- can't just ask us and not answer yourself. Well, you know. Uh. So, witness I had seen before a long, long time ago. We watched a lot of it in film school because the screenplay is regarded as being pretty solid and pretty model of screenplay structure with uh much to my uh much to my delight i bet i absolutely bet yeah um and it's also a favorite of my father so this was a movie that Mm. many times popped on the tv when i was younger and yeah so it's directed by peter weir written by william kelly pamela wallace earl w wallace before we go much further where you guys at with peter weir uh i I've seen a few of his movies. I'll be I'll be honest with you. This is uh, isn't this his first American production? Um, I've seen Gallipoli, which he had done mm-hmm. a few years before this, out of Australia, and um, that's with Mel Gibson. He also did um, do the Year of Living Dangerously, also with he Mel did. Gibson. Yes. That's also an Australian production. So I think Witness might be the first time he's actually producing a film in America. I think and that's after right. This, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm or, yeah, I'm not sure he ever. Uh, I'm not sure he ever works on a production again outside of America after this. I could be wrong with that. Um, but, I mean, after this, we get Dead Poets Society. Yeah. Um, the Mosquito Coast is in between the, there. Um, and then, uh, obviously, a little over more than a decade later, he's he has another triumph with The Truman Show, which uh, is quite popular, I think, with our generation. So it's The Truman Show is in my top 100, and I taught it, I think, two years and, you know, for, for students who a lot of the time say, like, they can't really get through a whole movie because two hours is too long, um, many of them are like, I think this is the best movie I've ever seen, which yeah. was delightful to me that 
that strange movie from 1998 had aged so well with them. The kids on TikTok also respond pretty positively to the Truman Show as well. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Josh, where you at with uh, P.D. Weir? Uh, until you asked this, I don't think I really knew uh, exactly what he'd done. Because mm-hmm. um, I think you have the outline here. Like, is does, is he like a journeyman or does he have like a, uh, a voice or a style? Um, he's got a pretty varied filmography. So that kind of yeah. would indicate to me... Um, I, I'm not sure I could like pin down a Peter Weir movie. Is yeah, what I'm yeah. trying to say. Um, I've seen Dead Poets. It's great. Um, we didn't mention Master and Commander, which is a movie that I'm very fond of. That I've actually mentioned on this podcast before in the mm-hmm. Barry Lyndon episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. big big fan of that movie. I don't really I don't really have like a, a beat on him just because he's he's got such a varied reach. He he doesn't. He also, I mean, kind of like uh, Kubrick. You mentioned Barry Lyndon. He doesn't have a huge filmography. Um, no, he doesn't. No. They're 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 kind of spaced out. And um, Josh, uh, we talked about this a little before we jumped on the, the jumped on to record. When was the last time he filmed? The way back in 2010. It was so, way back. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, <laughs> he did receive an honorary Oscar in 2023 for his contributions to cinema, but he hasn't. Yeah, he hasn't put a film out in about 13 years. His, I think, first hit or his first really big film that got him um, notoriety was Picnic at Hanging Rock from. 1975. I think I mentioned it in the 1975 wrap up episode. It'll mm-hmm. show up a lot on, you know, greatest films of all time lists. Uh, it was a tough sit for me. There are certain things I really appreciated about it. It's, it's a weird kind of ethereal sort of movie. Uh, there's a young Jackie Weaver in it, which oh. is, yeah, kind of interesting. But yeah, it's a, it's a very, very strange kind of mysterious movie that I appreciated more than I particularly enjoyed. I'm I'm only familiar with that film. I, I've not seen it. I'm only familiar with it though because it is uh, repeatedly referenced uh, as one of the all-time great Aussie movies yeah. that you should get to if you'd like to explore cinema out of uh, the world down under. Uh, Which Peter uh, Weir is from? From Sydney. Right. Yes. Uh, he was nominated for six Academy Awards throughout his lifetime and did not win any of them. To so. be clear, you say throughout his lifetime, he is still with us. That's true. That's true. But he's he hasn't worked in 13 years, so I don't know. Right. <laughs> I mean, I hope we can get another Peter Weir movie, but I'm not sure. Um, so the film, Witness, the storyline reads like thus. An eight-year-old Amish boy and his mother are traveling to Philadelphia on their way to visit the mother's sister. While waiting at the train station, the young boy witnesses a brutal murder inside one of the bathroom stalls. Police detective John Book is assigned to investigate the murder of the man who was an undercover cop. Soon after, Book finds out that he's in great danger when the culprits know about his investigation and hides out in the Amish community. There he learns the way of living among the Amish locals, which consists of nonviolence and agriculture. Book soon starts a romance with the mother of the little boy, but their romance is forbidden by Amish standards. But it's not long before the bad guys find out Book's whereabouts. I, I'm, I'm shocked. I'll be honest. I'm, <laughs> I'm shocked that this film made as much as it did. I know we'll get there in a little bit, but uh-huh. um, that description. I'm not I, actually. I'm not shocked at all. But other than the, other than other than the hair. I mean, well, let's let's. We haven't discussed like obviously who the lead is. That's obviously selling a lot of this movie. But just by the description, Amish. There's a murder, and then Amish again, and there's agriculture involved mm-hmm. and barn raising. But no singing and dancing. This isn't Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Um, I'm just I'm I'm a little surprised that as many people ran out to the movies to see this. Then again, uh, as we'll we'll talk in our next episode, 
there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of that reaction I think to some of these movies we've been talking about in 1985 as far as the number of people who went to see these. The reason I'm not shocked is it's a, it's an easy elevator pitch. Yeah, it's an easy sell. Yeah, like first of all, Harrison Ford. That's number one. Mm-hmm. Harrison Ford in 1985 is like you just said, kind of already a big sell. True. Like, yeah. This is like four years after Raiders, right? Yeah, Harrison yeah. Ford, a detective protecting a little Amish boy who witnesses a murder and needs to go into hiding. That's, again, a very, very simple elevator pitch. Mm-hmm. And, like, you hear that and you pretty much know what the movie will be. And the movie is that, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll talk about the, the screenplay structure in a bit. But, like, the reason I <laughs> the reason I respond well to movie structure like this is because it 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 goes the way I think it's going to go, but in, like, a good way. You mm-hmm. know, in, like, a satisfying way. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm not surprised at all this movie made money. I, I tried to think of if, you know, we usually do this later, but like if this were made now, I think it'd be kind of, it'd be straight to VOD, it'd be pulpier, and it would probably have Liam Neeson. Hmm. Ooh, yeah. That was, I don't know, that was just my interpretation. And I would watch it and kind of like it, um, <laughs> as I do with but, most but of also, <laughs> But also, like, there's like pretty easy shorthand of like, a fish out of water is like the easiest selling. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows what that story is like. And this is also kind of, this is like a fish out of water twofold. Like right. the first third is the kid mm-hmm. is the fish out of water. It's Amish people in a, you know, in Philadelphia in a train station. And then the second, then the second act is a different kind of fish in a different kind of water. It's John Book, Harrison Ford living among the Amish. So like, again, that's, that's like easy to, that's an easy, like, you know what that is immediately. Well, you're, yeah, you're talking about the, the, uh, the structure of the film, which is actually excellent. But as far as I think selling people ahead of time, um, this is a this is a, a bit of a term for for I think Harrison Ford. This is much more dramatic than it is action filled. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So compared to everything I think audiences have seen prior to this, even Blade Runner was sold as a bit more action packed than um, than mm-hmm. for example this. This I I mean the posters really are selling it with Harrison Ford. He's like oh, yeah. prominently in the middle, blown up his image on the front of the poster. I mean, this is Harrison Ford in Pennsylvania on the country. That's <laughs> or as they also sold it, a big city cop, a small country boy. They have nothing in common but a murder. Uh, <laughs> I love those old timey taglines. Um, yeah, and also on the top of the poster it says J- Harrison Ford is John Book. Are we supposed to know who that is before you right. see the movie? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it's a great name, though. Oh, it's, it's, it, it is a great name. name. It John is a Book. great name. Yeah. John Book. You Hell can just yeah. hear like he arrests someone like book him, John. You know, like ah. Uh. Uh, so uh, along with Harrison Ford as John Book, you have Kelly McGillis as Rachel. You've got Lucas Haas, young Lucas Haas as yeah. Samuel. Uh, you've got, he, he, and he's looking very much like Danny from The Shining in this. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Big eyes. Big eyes and like, uh, he, his mouth is open so much because he's like so in awe of the things around him, things he's seeing. Like and this is fountains. about the things that he, mm-hmm. this is about the things that he sees. So that's, uh. He is the titular really witness. Kids. Yeah. He is yes. the titular witness. That's true. And he is, he is in awe of being in the presence of Harrison Ford. Throughout <laughs> this whole yes, movie. Uh-huh. Uh, we got Joseph Sh- Summer as Schaefer, who's the police captain. Burt Jennings as Carter, which is Harrison, or sorry, John Book's uh, partner. Partner. Yep. Danny Glover pops in as Mick Fee. And man, Danny Glover. Well, Ken, you made a note here about Danny Glover. Yeah, he's. I, I think this is the first time so far in our series that we've had an actor appear in two Best Picture nominees in the same year. Because obviously, a few episodes ago, he's uh, prominently in uh, The Color Purple. Yeah, in this film less, but... 
I, I yes. commented in the color purple one that he seemed to, at least for me, to be playing against type because I always remembered him as like lethal weapon or angels in the outfield. Yeah. And, but man, he's a bastard in this one too, isn't he? Yes, he's yeah. he's in two of these films and he's a villain in both. Yeah. And this is pre-lethal weapon, did we say? This is, yes. Yes. Lethal weapon's mm-hmm. still a couple years away. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, Patty Lupone plays Elaine, who's uh, <laughs> She's a, Harrison Ford's sister, John Book's sister. Sorry, such a, um, such a small role. Yeah, but I, I didn't anticipate it coming, and because mm-hmm. I, I hadn't looked that deep into the cast list, and so when she appears, I'm like, oh, holy shit! Yeah, <laughs> it's I kind of missed, missed her actually because I, I knew beforehand that she was in it. And then, like, as the credits roll, it says, you know, Patty LePone in the credits. I'm like, wait a second, where was she? Oh, <laughs> and then I'm like, ah. Oh. Then I rewatched the first 20 minutes. I'm like, oh, there she is. <laughs> Just, yeah, no small parts, I guess, but and, a little bit of a small part. And Eagle Eyes will spot a very young Vigo Mortensen as Moses yeah. in the Amish yeah. community. Very young. He just flits in and out of scenes. And it's it's kind of jarring because every time you see him, you're like, that's Vigo Mortensen. Yeah. There's Vigo again. <laughs> so Witness was nominated for eight Academy Awards. It won two. The two that it won were editing and original screenplay. It was also nominated for picture, director, actor, Harrison Ford, score, cinematography, art direction, and music. Harrison Ford's only Oscar nomination. Can you believe that? Yes and no. Like, yes, because I think I've heard that before, but... Four Golden Globe nominations, Yeah, it's, I believe, it, uh, for yeah. uh, Witness, Mosquito Coast, The Fugitive, and Sabrina. But this is his only Oscar nomination. Which is wild. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's honestly, The Fugitive seems like a film that he'd get a nomination for, so it's a little surprising he doesn't. Particularly given once we get to that year, Tommy Lee Jones, of course, wins for for that same movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a little odd, but yeah, it there here it is. This is yeah. this is his big Oscar moment. Well, I mean, he's he's such Hollywood royalty nowadays. I mean, he mm-hmm. just presented Best Picture at the Oscars a few weeks ago as we're recording this. Yep, and like he. This is a, a awards body that's only nominated him once 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And yeah. they're like, oh, yeah, can you present Best Picture for us? <laughs> but okay. but it, as we've talked about, uh, uh, like with the Robert Redford episode, with uh, or Robert Redford in, in Out of Africa, um, Harrison Ford is, I think, first and foremost, a movie star, right? He just mm-hmm. happens to be a talented actor when you give him the right material, as we've seen. Um, shout out, by the way, for anybody who has access to Apple TV and wants to watch Shrinking, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, Ford is fantastic in Yes, so also cinematography real quickly by John Seal. Uh, John mm. Seal, ring a bell for you, Josh? Yeah. Well, I just said Mad Max Fury Road. There you go. Yes. Oscar for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. He was nominated. He's he didn't win. Witness me! Yeah. Oh, yeah, he lost to uh, he lost to Chivo for uh, The Revenant yes. that year, but he was nominated for Best Cinematography for Mad Max He does Fury have Road. Oscar wins because, if I recall correctly, didn't he win for The English Patient and was at least Ooh. nominated for Rain Man? He's got another couple. He's got another Best Picture, a couple Best Picture nominees. Um, and other audiences might also be familiar with Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. That's another John oh. He's also effectively retired at this point. I think he comes out of retirement to work with George Miller every now and then. Uh, John yes. Seal is nominated for Witness, for Rain Man, for The English Patient, which he won. He was nominated for Cold Mountain, and he was nominated oh. for Mad Max Fury Road. There you go. And yeah, his his most recent film, he did uh, he did 3,000 Years of Longing, I think, in yeah, 2022. Oh, yeah. for That's George a good Miller. movie. Yeah, I like yeah, that Yeah, good one. movie. Yeah. Uh, at the BAFTAs, Witness only won score. It had otherwise the same nominations, minus Art Direction, plus Best Actress for Kelly McGillis. Subtly good score. Shout out good by score here. Maurice. Yeah. Yes, Maurice Jarre. Okay, we've got the composer, the epic composer that, that Maurice is, having done Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Shivago and the, A Passage to India, which is actually the same year as this. Um, and one of my all-time favorite scores, uh, The Man Who Knew, uh, excuse me, The Man Who Would Be King. Mm. Um, so... 
yeah, he, you've got a big epic composer working on this film. And to your point, Josh, it's brilliantly subtle. It, mm-hmm. it kind of weaves itself through the film perfectly. It's kind of synthy and uh, very 1980s, um, which I think is like a good contrast to the Amr setting. But like, uh, again, I, I rewatched the first like 20, 30 minutes before we recorded. And the especially, especially the scene where the murder happens. Yeah. And Danny Glover is like, so Lucas Haas is like hiding in the stalls and Danny Glover realizes someone's in there. So he starts, you know, checking each of the stalls, oh. uh, you know, down the line. And like the music is like really tense. Propulsive. Uh, it's... And, it's, and the editing is really good too, which you know, that Academy Award winning editing, you know, cutting between Lucas Haas and uh, Danny Glover checking the doors. It's, it's really good. It's really effective. It's really tense. Mm-hmm. And the score is a big part of that. Uh, Peter Weir gets a DGA nomination, but does not win the DGA. And the film wins, to Spielberg. wins the WGA for best original screenplay. Witness was made on a $12 million budget, grossed $68.7 million domestically and $116 million worldwide. Ken, you said you were, you were surprised by that return. Uh, I mean, yeah, a, a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm a little surprised that it had – because we're, we're talking in 1985. Um, I had to check into it. It's about $169.2 million, $169-ish million, $170 million domestic. That's mm-hmm. that's what we would translate it to today's dollars. That's a, that's, a, that's a big chunk of change. That's a, that's a decent uh, box office return for a film that is, I mean, it's it's a propulsive, tense uh, thriller for sure, but it's a smaller film by comparison. Yeah, um, that is really really character driven. Yeah, as yeah. well. I mean, the, the plot. I'm not sure it is character driven actually, but we can talk about that. Okay, parts of it I think it is. Well, yeah. Well, let's get into it um, shortly. Um, <laughs> Real quick, just TJ, you missed you missed one of the the, the characters in the film. Alexander Godunov is uh, high class. Is he uh, creepy Popoyer? Daniel? Creepy Daniel. He's he is Carl from Die Hard. Oh, okay, he, right, he, okay, yeah, yeah. Man, as he the was neighbor, a, he was a creeper, man. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, he ends up kind of being a good guy, but all throughout, I'm like, Ugh. is he the blonde guy? The blonde yes, yeah, Hawk Lightner. He looks like if Carrie Elways was up to no good. <laughs> yes you know, he's got a um, he has a creepy look he's after yeah he we'll get into it but he's uh he's definitely has his eye on the newly oh for sure but rachel he has the he has the great like foreshadowing line as rachel and samuel are at the train station about to take off uh he leans down and says to samuel about his trip into the city you will see so many things <laughs> you will witness so many things foreshadowing <laughs> foreshadowing uh, big bold letters behind him and uh, blaring blaring mm-hmm. lights uh, so I want to get to actor versus movie star, third edition. I put third edition. I don't actually remember what both the other two were. We, so. <laughs> we talked about a, well, it was last week's episode of Prizzy's Honor and talked about a little bit about with, it regarding Jack Nicholson. Yeah, and, and then, then previously um, with Robert Redford. Yes, yeah. certainly with Robert Redford. Josh, where are you at with Harrison Ford? Obviously, he was a movie star. What do you think about his acting chops and how they stack up to something like, say, Nicholson slash Redford? I think it's hard for anybody's acting chops to stack up against Jack Nicholson. Uh, I guess I'll say that at the top. I hadn't really considered Harrison Ford versus Jack Nicholson. Um, Every time I give a performance, I'm like, what if this is as good as it gets? Okay. I think that he does, Harrison Ford certainly does have like a lane and a mode. And I think he, you know, the, the grizzled, gruff, like a little over it, but, you know, still gets the job done kind of character. That's, you know, that's Deckard. And Blade Runner, that's uh, Indiana Jones to a big extent. You know, the whole thing about Indiana Jones, he's a non-believer, and he, he he's a he's a doubter and becomes a believer. Um, and this again, he's like a grizzled, gruff, like 
kind of character. Um, and Han, Han Solo, again, a non-believer and kind of like, uh, think, kind of detached, uh, away from it all. Um, I think that's kind of his mode. And I think he's good at it. I think he's really good in this. But I guess to the point, you know, circling back to the conversation about movie stars, he is maybe more of a presence than a talent. I don't want to say he, he doesn't have talent because he's a very talented actor, but he is more of like, um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm watching Harrison Ford. And like, that's not a bad thing by any mm-hmm. means. Um, I think like, I, I enjoy watching him more than I enjoy watching Bob Redford and yeah, Africa, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think they both are leaning into their personas as celebrities as much as they are acting talent. And, but uh, I enjoy it more here, and it works for me more here. And I think an interesting, even though there's a lot of Harrison Fordisms in this performance, which again isn't necessarily a bad thing, but um, one of the things I like is his little kind of dry quips that remind me a lot of Han Solo. You know, when she's like, people think we're quaint. He's like, I wonder where they got that idea. Um, Or my favorite, which is when he's milking and he's like, what's the matter? You never had your hands on a teat before? And he's like, not one this big. (laughs) Um, The old man. Yeah. But also like like little little reactions. um, uh, Like when, when he and Rachel and Samuel are in the city and they sit down to eat some hot dogs. Oh, yeah. And and, uh, they pray uh, first. It's it's a nice like... Mm -hmm. Well, it's a nice, like, picture of a family that's not a family yet, but it, you know, could be at some point. It's, you know, a man, a woman, and a son. And he just starts housing his hot dog and notices, oh, shoot, Rachel and Samuel are praying, so I should probably, like, not chew while they're praying. And, like, just the way that plays out, the realization plays out on his face of, like, oh, shoot, I'm, like, being uncouth here. Mm -hmm. And, like, kind of watching them go through that. Exactly. So I'm going to stem off of what you're saying because I think think this speaks a lot to Harrison's fourth talent as an actor. I think first and foremost is true. We think of him as Harrison Ford, and that's why he gets billed more as the movie star. Um, he is, however, very skilled at what he does. Yeah. And he does what he, he does his thing very so well that if you take a look at a lot of his performances, he is very aware of the camera's presence. He's aware he's aware of where the camera is and where the audience is in conjunction with what he's doing in any given scene and moment. And that's where you get those those kind of subtle facial um, shifts or cues, he's very, very good at that across all of his performances. Yeah, I was just thinking about the moment that uh, Samuel identifies the attacker in, in you know, oh. uh, in, in the murder. He uh, he sees a picture of Danny Glover in, like, a trophy case at the police station, and, like, he doesn't, like, say anything, and Harrison Ford doesn't say anything, but, like, Harrison Ford watches Lucas Haas see the picture of Danny Glover, and then, like, realization hits both of them kind of simultaneously, and... Again, Harrison Ford doesn't say anything, but like the, the realization coming on his face of like, oh my god, it was Danny Glover that committed the murder. Uh, I can't really say anything out loud because we're in the police station right now, but like I need to uh, send this up the flagpole. There's just like just yeah, him kind of coming to that conclusion. It, it all it all plays out on his face, and it is like you just said, Ken, a very uh, subtle reaction. It, it it's it's really well done though. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to move along here to what I see. TJ, what's your take on Harrison Ford? <laughs> well, I mean, you guys said I think a lot of. I think you're correct. <laughs> um, he he has something a certain a certain screen presence that seems to be effortless that I think at least in out of Africa Redford didn't have. You know, so when you yeah. watch Harrison Ford doing the Harrison Ford thing, he doesn't he never really quite disappears into a role, and that's really okay. And I think that's his strength as a movie star is that his movie stardom actually enables him to make interesting, small, subtle 
choices in his performances because he keeps playing kind of a similar type but with small variations on it that the variations mm-hmm. and the differences become interesting choices yeah so yeah that's well said yeah he also um is great in anchorman too um, yeah. Oh, we get two great in this one. We get two of those great Harrison Ford angry yell points. Um, love I got those. you, asshole. Yeah. I know who you are, uh, asshole, or whatever. whatever love the that. Danny Glover. And yeah. then at the end, where he's like, "Is this what you're gonna do? Put it down. Put the gun down." Oh, so good. Uh, so as I was watching this movie and thinking about, okay, it's entertaining, but what's it about? About I see. Obviously, the movie sets up a lot of clashes a lot of visual clashes a lot of thematic clashes further than just the conflict of the plot i kind of spitballed these down to the amish community versus the city of philadelphia the i wrote the order versus the force which sounds like something out of star wars (laughs) (laughs) but what i'm referring to there is like the police force and everything that goes with the police force and you know the thin blue line and you know we all kind of cover our backs and there's unspoken rules here that you don't violate but then what they refer to as like der Oldenam or whatever on the amish community that likewise with rachel there are certain things that you cannot violate or as he says you know, you can't sin, otherwise you'll be shunned. And the shunning is basically a way of getting sort of expelled from that community. There's a lot set up in terms of cinematography and visual motifs with city versus country, especially in the opening images of the film. When you see the Amish walking one way on the screen, I believe they're going right to left, and then left to right, you get the vehicles starting to come in, right? So like right away, it sort of makes that clash between this older culture that preserves agrarian ways and then markers of civilization and modernity civilization in quotes and modernity and then also just the dictates of family versus one's community as i ran through those real briefly did it, did i leave any out or did any particularly resonate with you we'll start with ken i think that covers uh accurately all of the points that that we probably want to discuss in this film the one that really jumped out uh, to me, the most was uh, the the Amish order, as you mm-hmm. referred to it, um, and then the police force and the rules and the juxtapositioning, or even somewhat uh, comparing, compa- comparing positively comparing uh, the two. The fact that they're not all that dissimilar, even though uh, the outcome or actions taken against those who violate the rules um, is obviously different and, and juxtaposed more severely in the film. But mm-hmm. um, those were some of the more interesting scenes, particularly uh, we get back to back scenes of Rachel um, being advised on how to act so as not to be shunned. Uh, and then Carter being advised by Schaefer mm. being warned mm-hmm. right. uh, how yeah, to act in relation exactly. to the police force. And, it's a it's a really really stark back to back two scenes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess I guess what I'll say is kind of just piggybacking on exactly you're saying, TJ. Is I I, I was thinking about uh, the Cronenberg movie History of Violence. Oh my gosh, I was this. that's in my notes. And, yeah, and you know not just because the Viggo Mortensen appearance, but right. um, <laughs> uh, I, I saw that for the first time recently. I think we talked about it actually, and like the whole the, the premise of a History of Violence is there's Viggo Mortensen living this. Um, I'll use this phrase, American pastoral ideal. And I'll use the phrase again when we talk about witness. Tom Stone. Um, he's lip, he's living this life and it turns out he has like a, a dark past of being like a, a hitman and like working for the mafia. So it's this, it's this stark, stark contrast of this gritty, violent criminal underbelly of America against the 
American pastoral ideal, which is this, like you just said, agrarian, agricultural, uh, maybe simpler lifestyle. And like, you know, using the Amish is maybe a bit of a shorthand for that in, into some sense. But, you know, that's that's a stark contrast here, too. And then I think the contrast also brings up this uh, this concept that we've seen in a couple of the films we've discussed of, <laughs> you know, what's the real civilization? And just because you have a city ensconced in modernity weapons guns buildings etc doesn't mean like avatar there you go yeah <laughs> the navi abada uh, <laughs> uh doesn't mean that it's really any closer to some sort of human advancement and that actually the order within the amish community while often oppressive for many of the people that are involved there's there's certain positive qualities to that that get lost with kind of the speed of the city for lack of a better phrase uh, Which, and also like uh you know having your people and your family mm-hmm, uh and, mm-hmm. and a support system um harrison ford notably doesn't have, doesn't have a family right. uh, that scene that i already mentioned where they're having the hot dogs mm-hmm. uh and you know it's again it's a it's a picture of a family a man a woman and a son but they're not a family yet but uh rachel does say to him uh your sister said you don't have a family and he's like yeah i don't and uh, Patty Lapone, his sister, is a a single mom, I believe. Yes. And like when he, because he he brings Rachel and and Samuel to his sister's house to like hide out for the night, basically. And like she's got a man there, and he scolds her for for having a man in the house while while the kids are there and that kind of thing. So it is like that is again a contrast of like a single mom who's you know still trying to mm-hmm. <laughs> you know <laughs> sleep with men as as is her right, <laughs> and you know Harrison Ford, a single a single man past the age where you would, you know, often get married again, you know, com- contrasted against this, this Amish community where, you know, family is, is everything. And, and to follow up on in that scene, the interesting thing too, uh, that Elaine must've told Rachel was you need to get married and have your own kids instead of taking care of mine, but you're afraid of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you like being a police officer because you think you're always right. And yep. when you drink too many beer, too many beers, you talk about how everybody else is just like throwing elbows, but they don't, they're not really no, doing uh, law enforcement. These, these cops wouldn't know the crook, wouldn't know a crook from a bag of elbows. There you go. Is the, yeah. Is the line. yeah. Which I was like, okay, I've not heard that phrase before, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but sure, gotcha. And what's, what's really interesting about what that sets up about his character, I think, in terms of the responsibility is when he goes and plays that pseudo father role later in the film for Samuel, Samuel, mm-hmm. yeah. he has to take on. A responsibility that actually goes outside of his duty as a law enforcement officer and becomes something that's much more about, you know, father-son patriarch for this kind of adopted pseudo-son that he has. But also this idea that, you know, you like policing because you think you're always right. Well, how does he end up on the on the Amish farm is uh, he wasn't right. He trusted the wrong guy in Schaefer. Yeah, he got, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, he got shot. Mm-hmm. All right. Um so uh, w- within all of these contrasts that we see, I saw a what appears to be law versus lawlessness. You know, they, uh, Rachel mentioned several times, I don't want anything to do with your laws when they're right. telling them we have to bring you back to be questioned. So what appears to be these communities built on law and a community built on lawlessness are actually two different distinct traditions and ways of approaching community history and violence, the role that violence plays. I think something that this movie is very interested in is to borrow from what Josh was talking about in the film, The History of Violence, is an American brand of crime, one in which violence and corruption also become a sort of religion or, and I'm using this as a neutral term, but a sort of thing that binds a cult together. 
Um, so I, I think it's juxta- juxtaposed to the things that bind together the religious community. Within Do you think the it's Amish. binding together like the the cops engaged in the corruption? Is that who's binding? Yeah, together? who's binding together? Yeah, okay. the co- uh-huh. and then that because it was them. There's this idea with Carter and with Book that well, you wouldn't turn on your own, hmm. right? Um, so yeah. how how does unjustice your fellow policeman? Yeah, yeah. How does unjust injustice happen? Who watches the Watchmen here? And that's why the end of the movie with the siege really kind of turns into a western in an interesting mm-hmm. yeah. way. I'd like to come back to that later, but. Can we talk about the opening? Yes, please. The first, I'm, I think it's about 16 minutes. 16 minutes they get on the train. 17. Se- yeah. Excuse me. I'm, I'm watching my watch. <laughs> I'm just, okay, Harrison Ford arrives in minute 17. That's what I'm really remembering. Ah, okay. Harrison Ford shows up okay. in minute 17. So, so I, was, we're through I, was, the, I was watching it on 1.11 speed, so it was 16 minutes. From <laughs> uh, You're saying we're through the murder. Yeah. We're through the murder. Yeah. The, the pre-Harrison Ford pro, you know, yes. prologue, entree. Is, I, I think, like pretty slow and in a in a slow and peaceful way like i wasn't slow bored by the first six i think it's extremely well done though i was yes. gonna say i think it's I, really well yes done. yes excellently lots done, yeah. of moving parts here and i think the slowness of it and the beauty and the ethereal nature of the nature shots and and the music are setting up something idyllic that's about to be disrupted great imagery by the way i think the crux of what why this is so effective is it really places us into Lucas Haas's point of view into Samuel's point of view. Um, we're seeing everything through his wide eyes, this wide-eyed wonder that he has. Again, there's a lot of shots of his face. His eyes are wide. His mouth is open as they get on the train, something he's probably never been on before. And, you know, he watches the the land go by really quickly out the window. Again, something he's never seen before. And then they go to the train station. There's all these people that are dressed in ways that he's not used to because they're not dressed like Amish people. And, um, uh, there's a great moment where he goes up to what I believe is like a, a yes. Jewish man yeah. yep. thinking it's another Amish guy. And the guy just kind of looks at him he's like, and Lucas has like, oh, I made a mistake. <laughs> this <laughs> yeah. is one of my people. This is not another um, you alluded to the drinking fountain earlier, TJ. Yeah. I think that's like a great moment where he's never seen a drinking fountain before. And he's like mm-hmm. so impressed by like the pressing of the button. Yeah. So the movie is teaching us to see everything through his eyes and to see like this wonderful, strange new things around us. The movie is teaching us to see things through his eyes, which sets up the murder so brilliantly. Because, like, the way the murder happens is there's this guy in the bathroom, and then Danny Glover and his second guy come in, uh, and they, you know, one guy puts a bag, a jacket over his head to cover his face, and Danny Glover, like, whips out a knife and cuts his throat. Uh, if we had just seen that without any context, that'd be a pretty intense scene. But because we are implicitly watching it through the eyes of this kid, because the movie has taught us to see everything through the eyes of this kid, it's like 10 times more intense than it would have been otherwise. And, and it would have been in a vacuum. So much more terrifying. Yeah, and a kid who has no context really for crime in that sense. Very little yeah, context. Violence. Exactly, for sin. No context really for violence. Um, is is coming in there. He wouldn't have even seen anything on TV, as we, as we learned later with, you know, honey this is good coffee and they don't get his commercial <laughs> reference at all so this is i, I mean any eight-year-old would be horrified by what he's seen but you, from the perspective of samuel this is something that is really even unimaginable i love in that scene in particular how brutal the murder is like peter weir doesn't shy away it's not like he, he stabs him in the stomach a couple of times or like you know slits his throat with the guy's back turners we see it all and it is brutal and it is jarring, and that is exactly what 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 obviously Samuel would see no matter what. But what what I, and what I'm saying is, it is 
a lot, lot, lot more intense and a lot worse because yes. the audience is so like tuned into his point of view. And it's a lot worse than it would have been had we just seen this murder without that aspect. And I think that's like that's why I think the first 15 minutes is like really, really, really well done. And the juxtaposition as well of like the kind of slowness of the first 15 minutes and then they get to the train station mm-hmm. and time intercedes again where it's delayed three hours and the guy's like, it's delayed, just go sit over there. Like I don't have any time yeah. to deal with you. A lot yeah. of the things that you were talking about, Josh, so the camera is in his eye line. So a yeah, lot of slower. a yeah. lot of the perspective there that becomes disorienting for adults is uh, empathizing with the perspective, the, the, the camera position of the eight-year-old boy. There's another interesting note where, do you remember the, the statue that he sees in the train yes. station? Correct. The, what is it? There's the statue. It. It's not a the it's it's not a Pieta, but it, it's of um, it, it's Angel of the Resurrection is what it is. So it's uh, the arc Michael the Archangel lifting a dead soldier from the battlefield, which plays a little bit shortly there shortly later in the film. It mm-hmm. reappears in the form of Harrison Ford and um, uh, Eli. Yeah, yeah, Rachel's father-in-law. Yeah, which I think was really cool. But then the the boy sees that, and then the kind of reverse shot on him is almost over the shoulder of the statue. And it, it I mean, he's tiny. He's he's tiny, and he's isolated, and it's empty around him. It's very effective filmmaking. I thought um, one last thing about the beginning that I wanted to say that first section is it's also again very quiet. There's lots of sort of mumblings around the funeral, um, the funeral ceremony that's going on. And you get that creepy Daniel who's just <laughs> funeral crashing already on yeah. Rachel. He's just, you know, her poor husband's barely cold and he's moving in on that widow. But this also sets up another visual motif in the movie that we see a lot, which is barriers, frames, and particularly thresholds being separations between men and women. Mm-hmm. This recurs several times throughout the film. And so the men are talking about, you know, business about buying horses and whatnot, but then the women are in the other room left to do um, what later turns up actually to be gossip when they're putting up the barn, but doing the kind of like emotional work of the community. And that's another, I think, conflict that's set up visually in the film at the beginning. And it makes for, I mean, you already feel you already feel the awkwardness, but makes it all the more awkward when Daniel then enters that space where the women yeah. are all gathered and yeah. interrupts their talking and they all shift his they shift their attention to him and he just kind of awkwardly stumbles through a a, a condolences to Rachel. Uh, yeah. as if he's he's gonna he's slash gotta, here's he's gotta, my number. Yeah. Right, yeah, he's gotta oh, he's gotta lay God. claim. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm I'm vying for the new position. Yeah. We also get uh, real quickly the behind their carriage that they're stuck like behind an 18 wheeler. And then you've got the gas station and the dairy queen. And this is something that comes up again in the third act, right at kind of that crisis moment where Harrison Ford punches somebody, (laughs) (laughs) but the way in which, you know, modernity holds them up and obscures their, their progress as well. So a lot going on right in the beginning there. Um, We talked about the murder scene. Do you guys have any other notes on the murder scene that you wanted to discuss? Just at the score and the audience point of view, ups the intensity in a way that I think is really admirable. I mean, I've already said both those things, but mm-hmm. it's just like the button I want to put on it. The the graffiti in the bathroom too is like, if the boy turns away, he ends up seeing boobs graffitied on the bathroom wall. Um, and that's, a, that. that is a nasty bathroom when he climbs underneath the stall yeah. and there's just like bits of toilet paper. I'm like, Ooh, I might've just taken my odds against Danny Glover. I will throw out here. Uh, Samuel is a very, very intelligent 
uh, young boy, particularly given the fact that he lives in an Amish community, he thinks really rapidly. I'm not sure, to be honest, when I when I was his age, if I'd have been able to think as rapidly as he does, knowing he's going door to door and knowing exactly what at what precise moment to slip under and then climb mm-hmm. onto the toilet, crouch mm-hmm. down, feet lifted. Do you think that would have worked? Or do you think this is like some movie bullshit that this works for him? Sneaking under um, the... I think, yeah. I think, I'll be honest, I'm a little shocked that he pulls it off without them noticing, because technically the other, there's two of them in there. Danny Glover's the only one punching, you know, checking the doors, but the other guy's in there. If he's in a bathroom, he said he checked already. Yes, but. It didn't take me out of the movie. It didn't take me out of the movie, but like, part of me is like, eh, would would they really not have seen him if he did this? Climbing under, yeah, that's the thing. If you're in a bathroom, think about, like, you, you notice if somebody's, like, moving under a bathroom stall. Uh, it also makes noise. I bought it. I was fine with it. <laughs> no, I was fine with it that in is, the moment. Yeah. That is such a good trope, though, of checking the bathroom stalls down the line. Uh, oh, yeah. I can't think of how many movies do this. Uh, Monsters, Inc. It happens in Monsters, Inc. Mm-hmm. Um, does it happen in one of the Mission Impossible movies, maybe? Probably. Uh, I, I can't remember. But, um, yeah, that's just that's a great trope of, mm-hmm. of checking all the bathroom stalls. I, I love that. <laughs> never, never a bad, bad scene. <laughs> Which also, um, I'm not entirely... Uh, th- this is more of a, a, I guess, side criticism of the character of McPhee. If there is somebody in the stalls... Uh, he hasn't really spoken, right? And so if somebody's in the stalls and you can't see them, chances are they didn't see you. So he's checking the stalls. The only witness is possibly somebody who overheard. They don't know that a little boy was staring through the slats between the door and the frame, the stall frame, and saw them. Right? That's a good note for, for the murder of Danny Glover. Yeah, you should let him know. Yeah, that I mean, it's just, it's <laughs> just an aside. Dear Danny Glover. Um, yeah. So then... Uh, Next time you commit murder, don't worry so much about the people in the stuff. It's, just, <laughs> it's a criticism of films like that, moments like that, again, where you've got a criminal maybe doing something a little stupid and unnecessary, <laughs> because what's the worst case scenario? Somebody was in a stall using the bathroom and overhears a murder. <laughs> okay, so uh, so we, we set up the movie where this, this murder happens, and our... Can you said this movie is character driven and I want to push back a little bit and say I think this is a very very plot driven movie not in the way that bothers me in any way but like as I already alluded the fact that we don't meet John Book till minute 17 it reminds me more of like something like Fargo where it's more a movie about a thing that happens rather than a movie about these characters going through something and and there's I think there's enough to John Book that like he works on the page and he works on the screen but he's not somebody that I'm like Oh man, there's just so much going on there. Like I gotta figure out. It's pretty clearly yeah. laid out. Like here's what he's good at. Here's what he's not good at. Throw him into this situation. And like, and you know, like a character-driven movie might give you more on like what's what's this character missing in their life and how are they gonna get it? And like, it's not that we don't have that. Like we already mentioned, like the the references to him not having a family. But like, that's not really what this movie is. Like that's part of it. But like, that's not that's such a secondary like mm-hmm. afterthought to me. Um. Yeah, and again, I, th- I thought of Fargo, where we don't meet our main character till the like the thirty minute mark. Right. Um. You know, after the crime is taking place. Similar case here. You see the whole crime take place before you actually meet your main character. I also want to mention that uh, Harrison Ford has a great entrance. Again, at minute seventeen, like we see like the back of his head as he's like asking people, "Where's where's our witness? Where's our witness? Whatever." And then like he turns and he's got like this dramatic turn mm. towards the camera, and he's like, "Uh, it's just a really great like movie star." entrance there. trivia trivia note right there he's he's finally directed to his his titular witness uh by the custodian at the train station who is played by uh james earl jones's father 
Oh, oh wow. Yeah, Robert Jones. Yeah. <laughs> Robert Jones. He's the swear hog. Uh, I am your grandfather. <laughs> uh, th- there's another, I think, interesting character moment is when they're asking the boy to identify, you know, who, who saw, oh, the boy in the funny black dress. And they ask him, you know, what did this man look like? And he says he looks like the other one and points to Carter. That yep. he doesn't really have the vocabulary for distinguishing people on boundaries of race. Think about where he was raised yeah. and what he would have seen. But he also doesn't really understand kind of the faux pas of doing that either. Um, mm-hmm. And then calls him the stumpig because he's short, which was great. Um, <laughs> but but Ken, you think this is character driven? I mean, make your case. I, I'm not going to make that hard of a case. I don't disagree that it's <laughs> plot driven, um, but I think that there are elements to the characters that um, is more than than solely plot driven. Um, particularly, sure. and this is yeah. also. I mean, it's a, it's a good movie. Of course, there's stuff beyond the plot happening. Yeah. <laughs> well, particularly in comparison, I mean, we've, we've watched five films now in 1985. This is the first time in all of these films we get any kind of what I, as, as an audience member, I get a genuine sense of romance and a genuine sense of mm. emotion between the characters. There are several you scenes. Didn't, it, it didn't do it for you in Out of Africa when Bob Redford washes Meryl Streep's hair? Uh, not as much as my wife. No, but no. there were there were there were some pretty sexy scenes in this movie, though, and I I want to get to those in a bit. But it was a lot of loaded glances. Oh my god! Loaded, uh, but yeah. they they're they were fucking the shit out of each other in this movie. It was. What are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> what? How am I going to bleep I fucking? <laughs> Just cut the whole thing. I don't care. Okay. Um. Do you want to retake it? Say it a different way. No, it's okay. Um, okay. All right. So yeah, John Book. We just talked about meeting John Book. John Book's by the by the book. He's by the law. Uh, there's several scenes after this that we've hit on already, praying over the hot dogs, all of that business. And we get the other scene that we briefly mentioned, but I think we should spend some more time on inside the police station where Samuel is able to kind of finally identify the perpetrators. More more comments on this scene. My first things I was watching it was who lets a kid just wander the, <laughs> the yeah. police station? Like was, especially with that like creepy pedophile guy that was in there. I'm like, I'm yes. not sure I would let He was a pedophile? The guy yeah, that's why I thought he was a pedophile. I get the same based on what the way he's reacting to Samuel. Because Samuel walks no, I by, he's a creepy, cre- creepy criminal. I didn't think, I didn't think, I didn't think pedophilia or anything. Well, because he starts, he starts pulling on. He's obviously cuffed to the chair, and he starts shaking and pulling on the pulling on his hand away from the chair. Did you guys take that to mean he was shaking because he really wanted to grab Samuel and yes. do things to him? Because I did not get that at all. I did, yeah. I got. He was okay. getting overly excited because of the He's got boy. a free hand. I think he was just kind of taunting the kid because he's an asshole. Like, he's got a free hand if he wanted to grab Samuel, he could. TJ and I, I have darker minds. We're just, we, we just went so. there, yeah. apparently. Um, uh, but to your point, TJ, he also, like, Rachel really lets him wander the train station yeah. in a way that, like, uh, yeah. Post Stranger Danger World probably wouldn't be the case as much. I'm like, man, she's really giving him a long leash. I guess good for her, but also at the same time, like, long leash also means he witnesses a murder. So maybe keep mm-hmm. a closer eye on your kid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so he goes over to the trophy case, is looking through the trophies, all the men standing with guns. He sees the newspaper photo of McPhee, 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 McPhee. Yes, and and then he points. Just as Harrison Ford does, <laughs> yes. and it's what what you mentioned earlier. What's so good about the scene? There's a lot of scenes throughout this film where nothing is spoken and everything is spoken through looks. Is that John comes over, puts the two together of what what Samuel you know who, who Samuel is pointing out for this, but isn't able to 
verbalize it or confirm it and immediately is like dude you gotta put your hand down can we yeah, let's, yeah, yeah. let's talk about that whole scene because it he, he when he's looking at the, the cabinet he sees uh he sees the newspaper cut out he sees McPhee's he witnesses picture, the newspaper cut out uh, and and it cuts back to him and his eyes i mean lucas haas to his credit also working with working those face muscles like harrison ford his eyes get really big suddenly and he slowly turns his face back towards ford who's at that point, Book is across the room sitting at his desk, and he's on the phone. And he kind of is glancing up every once in a while, obviously keeping an eye on the kid. And he looks up and sees the look on Samuel's face. And slowly, he he says something to the person on the phone. In other words, I gotta, you know, get back to you or whatever. He puts the phone down, and then carefully walks over there. And there's this look of concern on his face, as if Oh, please tell me this is not what I, I suspect it might mm. be. As if, as if maybe there's some background or some mutual um, animosity between him and McPhee. You know, they don't really get into that, but he almost seems to suspect as he's walking towards Samuel um, that what he's about to learn is probably not what he wants to hear. And sure enough, when he bends down at Samuel's level, he looks at the picture and Samuel points at the photograph. And yes, to your to your point, very subtly, it's a great moment. He just grabs his hand and puts down the finger mm-hmm. and kind of glances around him at the other cops in the room. And then he puts his finger to his lips correct. as you just did. Yes. When I first saw this, I was like, okay, you're putting a lot of faith in this boy's ability to, <laughs> you know, eyewitness reports are not very strong. You're putting a lot of faith in this, but then we learn in the next scene as he tells the chief that he's able to put things together because it, it makes so much sense. Um, Josh, can you give us some of the details on why this makes so much sense? Uh, well, he goes to the chief's house. He makes a house call, which mm-hmm. makes you uh, it emphasizes that it's uh, urgent and also um, some discretion is is warranted. Uh, and the reason is he learned that there was like some drug seizures or like not drug seizures, but like a, a chemical seize that like think makes meth or something like that. Yeah. Like I don't know. Uh, I've, I've, it's been a long time since I've seen Breaking Bad. So I don't remember the details. But um, so there was this seizure of these assets, uh, ostensibly by the Philadelphia police, that was, uh, supposedly went into storage. But it is stuff that's worth a lot of money if you sell it to people who make drugs. It's like $20, $20 million worth of, of uh, these chemicals. And uh, John Book learned, you know, he looks up the uh, storage and the seizure, and it was never logged in storage like it was supposed to so somebody probably in philadelphia pd uh is dirty and on the take and uh dealing drugs and i believe the guy who was murdered in the bathroom was an undercover correct drug agent yes Yes. so uh not hard to put together what's going on here (laughs) um and john book just kind of pitched this to the chief and that was a mistake. The, the, yeah, the mistake he makes thinking that the chief's clean. The chief seems like just a nice old guy. Even later, you know, it kind of reminded me of Thief with the the villain in Thief, Robert, uh, whatever his name was. Robert Prosky. Yeah, yeah there you go. Prosky, yeah. That he's, he's so kind of kind and grandfatherly that he becomes a lot more menacing later. Like when he even goes to Elaine's house and is like, I don't want to have to take you in for questioning. Yeah, and that's it, a, and it like, works. Uh, I mean, that's a trope, though. Like Max von Sydow in Minority Report. And James Cromwell in uh, L.A. Confidential. Like the Brooks and Drive. Although yeah. James Cromwell in L.A. Confidential is an asshole the whole time, though. He is, but he's like <laughs> the, the old grandpa in charge of the police. Yeah, yeah. Is never to be trusted in movies like this. <laughs> never yeah, trust the, lesson here. the old white man in charge of the police. Um, <laughs> and then we get, uh, we get a shootout in the parking lot because the chief goes and tells uh, McPhee about it. 
almost the second week in a row where we got somebody accidentally getting popped to getting off the elevator. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she she reopens the door and is like, "That's our card." <laughs> I don't care, you idiot. <laughs> um, yeah, he's in his he's in his parking garage. We assume, I guess, he's at home. Mm-hmm. This is his apartment building. Um, yeah, that happens really, really quickly, and I'm I, I I'm almost. Not sure, given the fact that there are witnesses coming off the elevator. Is McPhee going to pop him, or is he going to approach him, you think? What is the plan here? You think he's going to approach him to try and work with him? or No, I think exactly he came out sure. shooting. Well, he came out shooting. I'm not, I'm not sure what, yeah, I'm not sure what McPhee or what the game plan is, because um, it well, doesn't... Well, Harrison Ford draws first. Yeah, that's uh, the thing. Han, yes, shot, Han, Han shoots, shoots first, first. Yes. that's right. Um, yeah, he turns around, he's holding, he drops his, his, his groceries or whatever, pulls the gun, and... Um, yeah, we get a nice little shootout that does, in fact, end with him getting shot. Um, and he, man, talk about adrenaline really getting getting people up and moving. He does quite a bit, uh, having been shot right after this. He does. <laughs> I mean, he he collects Rachel and Samuel, then drives him a long way out to Amish country, mm-hmm. and then doesn't pass out until he gets him out of his car. Right, and hits the birdhouse. He just yeah. trashes that birdhouse, which comes back later. Uh, he says there's not going to be any trial, right? Um, you you said we'd be safe in Philadelphia. I was wrong. So a few scenes ago, he thinks he's always right. And now he's forced to admit that he's wrong. He ends up staying with the Amish and gets nursed back to life through his night terrors. With like with milk and stuff. Milk and like flaxseed oil or something. Yeah, and like some that. nasty tea. They, they, they use the Gwyneth Paltrow treatment to treat his uh, infection. Yeah. It's tea and um yeah, tea and, and vagina candles, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> um that's when we first start getting development of the romantic subplot. How's the romantic subplot work for you guys in this film, especially as opposed to maybe out of Africa to use another point? I mean it it, it is kind of an afterthought to me. It's an afterthought um, for you? I mean, okay. Yeah. I mean I think so. Oh for me for me I don't think it's an afterthought. I think it wor- I, I think it works really well. Um I, I think this is a this is a situation where you got two characters who are from very different worlds and it's not ultimately you just don't see any way to remedy the differences between these two worlds. Um, but yeah, they're stark cross lovers. They're, they're, they're drawn to one another. Um, I, I, I guess I'll say this and this is going to get into the structure of the movie, which we can talk more about later, but like it's got a perfect act one and a really great break into two, which is like basically realizing Danny Glover's the killer. And then it's got a, a solid third act that you know is coming, that showdown you know is coming. But the second act is like really less propulsive than the first or the third. And the second act is mostly just him recovering and him kind of learning the Amish ways of life and him making eyes at Kelly McGillis over and over again. And like, but the second act is kind of like waiting around for that inevitable, con- uh, you know, mm-hmm. conflict that's happening in the third act. Because you know, you know it's going to happen and you're just kind of waiting for it to happen. And like the the romance is kind of just like, in the downtime, waiting for Danny Glover and Harrison Ford to eventually show da- show down, like you know they will, and you know, let's make eyes at each other while we wait for that inevitable conflict. I thought it was kind of where I am on the. Right I thought side. it was important for the theme of adhering to old traditions of your community versus following uh, kind of personal emotional attachments outside of that, even if that risks you being shunned, you being expelled from that community. So I thought it was an interesting opposite side to what book is going through as well at least for the rachel character yeah particularly i mean we we get rachel not only is she is she faced directly with eli eli confronts her with the fact that you know 
she's got to be careful because she's treading this this um, kind of dangerous path where she might end up shunned, given the fact that mm-hmm. rumors abound in the Amish community between her and this Ohio Amish man, <laughs> yeah. John Book, because um, the rest of the community doesn't know all of the details. Um, but she pushes back. Yeah, she she's correct that she's done nothing wrong, and yet she's still going to have to bear the consequences for the actions of the men around her. Both book coming into her life, but also then whatever the elders decide. She hasn't really done anything. The worst thing she does is like listen to music from the car radio. Which is a great scene, by the way. That's a wonderful scene. I love that scene with uh, Sam Cooke's wonderful world playing from the, once he gets his car working again. Yeah. Um, A couple things in the meantime of this, this waiting for Danny Glover to come back. There's some really important dialogue, I think, with, you know, Samuel touching the gun which I thought later Samuel's going to end up killing Danny Glover or it just, I thought so too. Yeah, yeah, I saw yeah, that coming. Thought they that up. Um, but he doesn't, he runs away to creepy Daniel's farm. <laughs> well, but he doesn't. Uh, well, yeah, right, right. He's supposed to run away to creepy Daniel's farm. Um, the, the discussion with the Amish elders about, you know, it's not our place to ask how he came to us. So what I think is really interesting is the outside world, the police department is absorbed in the mechanisms of the present. How did he know this? What can we do? Who do we call? How do we find him? Whereas the Amish are kind of living outside of time and the cause and effect of it doesn't matter to them so much as how they take care of the person that's in front of them at that time. So I think there's an interesting uh, interplay in terms of the values there. There's a great Um, disconnect when Schaefer reaches out to the local uh, (laughs) Lancaster County Sheriff trying to figure out, okay, can Mm -hmm. we find this this, uh, um, Rachel Lapp? And the sheriff yeah. is like, well, um, I don't think I don't think you realize how many laps there are. Like, I forget how many, like fourteen thousand or yeah, something. 14, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> he's like, I don't have the manpower to go farm to farm looking for your one Rachel. Yeah, and then the important conversation as well between Samuel and the grandfather, um, where he says, "Would you kill another man?" And Samuel says, "I would only kill a bad man." And his grandfather says, you know these bad men by sight? You're able to look into their hearts and see this badness? And his response, which I think is really smart, I can see what they do. Can't see into their heart, but you can see their actions. And their actions are supposed to give you some sort of indication as to what this type of person this is. Which is something that... It's not who I am underneath, but what I do that defines me. Thank as you, Christian Bale would later say, 20 years later. <laughs> and then the, fi- the button on that scene is really like, what you take into your hands, you take into your heart. Um mm. I'll be honest, that scene also stuck out to me because, you know, Eli's telling him, essentially, the gun is lying there on the table and he's telling them, he's telling him not to touch the, quote, unclean thing. Mm -hmm. And you can't help but be distracted by the current world in which we're living. We're in America in 2023. And I feel like this is a conversation that is so apropos or certainly a conversation that might be happening even outside of Amish kitchens um, (laughs) (laughs) to a degree. Like, I mean... What is the what is the good of this instrument? Like, what is it used for, and how do you know? Like, who, who's who's using it for? Who's using it? When are they using it? And how do they know they're using it uh, at the right time? And Samuel, to your point, does have the does have a really great response. Mm-hmm. But Eli's also not wrong in everything that everything that comes from using it, even just once. What that means thereafter, all of the effects. Does the scene where John Book has a, he has a similar moment with Samuel on a gun? Yep. Does that come later? That comes right before. No, that's earlier. Yeah, that's yeah, earlier. Right before. Right before. Okay. Mm-hmm. About taking the bullets out. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting contrast of like John Book's like, you know, never touch this unless I'm here. Mm-hmm. You know, don't touch if it's loaded. 
And then Eli's like, don't touch it at all, you know, and is. Yeah. And Rachel's rebuke of, of John, which is when you're in this house, you'll respect these rules. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, mm-hmm. But it is like the two philosophies of the police force, the force and the order, to use your terms of, you know, um, be smart about using this and don't use this. Yeah. You know, um, it's not our it's not it's not our way. Mm-hmm. It's my way, though. You know, I do love that contrast, though, from early on when they're in Philadelphia and he kind of laughs at her when she suggests that she doesn't live by they don't live by their their laws or their rules meaning philadelphia's laws and non-amish rules and um customs and here she is well you're in amish country now so you have to abide by our rules mm-hmm. and yeah. he seems to be yeah because he seems to be forgetting about it in the moment i mean you'd think he, everything he knows about these people yeah just take the gun away from the kid but he's giving him what he thinks let's be honest a police officer he thinks he's giving the kid a, a smart lesson in gun safety and how to deal with guns don't touch it if it's loaded or without an adult around mm-hmm. um and yet no the rule here is don't ever touch it at all so we have other fun scenes you know the the 430 milking that we talked about the really nice car radio scene um that i love that when it flips over to her she's sort of like bathed in the the red of the tail light there and it's yes. the red of passion that's boiling underneath her um i think it's a pretty successful seduction scene as well um, I agree. I think it totally works. That dance, the dance scene, it's so carefree. It's so natural. It, it flows so smoothly from everything that's played up to that point. Mm-hmm. Again, in contrast to some of the, particularly out of Africa, but um, in contrast to a lot of other movies that you sometimes feel the relationships might be forced. This one I feel is naturally, it, it naturally develops from what's going on in the film and they're constantly obviously at odds because that scene is of course interrupted by Eli coming mm-hmm. in. And while he just recently, just before that he's chastised Samuel about handling the gun. Now he's coming in to chastise Rachel about more or less handling John book. Right. Uh, we get the nice sequence with the raising of the barn, which I think had some really wonderful compositions and again, works on that kind of threshold split between the men and the women. Um, you get a little bit of camaraderie between Daniel and John. They share each other's backwashed lemonade, yeah. uh, <laughs> which is kind of gross. Um, and a lot of the kind of quiet glares at the table there. Um, and then really shortly after this is when things really get ratcheted up. He goes into town. He finds out Carter's dead on the it phone call. Break into three. Yes. Um, now we're into act three. All right. What happens to take us into act three, Josh? Oh, he uh, he goes to a payphone. They talk about him going to town to use a payphone like mm-hmm. several times. Yeah. And that's kind of like act two is kind of us waiting out him going to town to use the payphone, as I kind of alluded earlier. And uh, he tries to call his partner, Carter, and learns that Carter was killed in line of duty last night. And John Book immediately knows that's horseshit. Mm-hmm. So he calls the chief and says, uh, effectively, I'm coming for you, pal. Or, you know, whatever. I don't know what he says. But um, once again, setting this final conflict. And... As they are heading back from town to, like, their, their farm or whatever, uh, they're stopped by these local hoodlums, these <laughs> mm-hmm. Philadelphia hoodlums, I guess, who, uh, this is also kind of like, I'm not saying there's not uh, very ignorant people in the world, there definitely is, but, like, this level of, like, antagonistic, like, passerby, I think is a little bit of, like, movie bullshit kind of thing, but, like, these, you know, guys walking past the Amish, like, he puts ice cream in his face mm-hmm. and, like, you know, laughs at him, knocks his hat off. And there's such a great shot where, like, you know, there's this, you know, these local hoodlums trashing, uh, what's is he, what's his name? Daniel? Daniel. Daniel, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hook Lightner. Sure. And then, like, there's a shot. Th- this sequence plays out. Then there's a shot from the other carriage. It's just Harrison Ford's arm 
on the arm of the carriage as he gets out and you're like okay damn, I'm about to go down <laughs> yeah and that's when we get the it's not our way yeah but it's my way yeah line. um but it's because of this fight that the police are alerted to his presence right because somebody calls in this uh weird amish guy from ohio who like <laughs> who punched out four dudes well because and like it should be we, we should know as we were telling earlier schaefer reached out to the the lancaster county sheriff and so they're they're aware of the fact that there's a Philadelphia cop hiding out with the Amish, and suddenly we get this Amish guy who's visiting from Ohio, and he's acting nothing like mm-hmm. the Amish that they know. Um, so that alerts them that that's where John Book is, and that's how uh, Schaefer and um, Danny Glover and a third guy show up on the farm with shotguns it yeah. is, in the, the Western shootout, as TJ alluded. I also like the scene where they're in the town, they face the hoodlums, as you're talking about. Um, it also speaks, I think, again, to community and to an extent kind of sticking with your own, because nobody comes to the defense of the Amish in that scene, and it's only after Harrison Ford steps out of the carriage and he punches the hoodlum in the face several times, when suddenly witnesses come running over shocked by the Amish man who's committed violence. None of them did anything about these hoodlums pushing back or assaulting. I mean, it's it lives literal battery. I mean, he's, he's touching Daniel. Granted, it's not violent, but he is... Uh, welcome to contact. Ken's Law Corner. <laughs> yes. Uh, assessing the crimes taking place against the Amish community. But they're, the, these hoodlums are standing in the street. They're blocking their, their egress. They can't get out of the town until these guys... And nobody's coming to their defense, but suddenly, oh, let's rush over and tell the sheriff. Your Honor, they were blocking the egress. <laughs> Oh, and well, because what they do is they, they, they gawk at them, but they don't see them. The tourists take pictures of them, but they don't really see them as people. You know, and lady, if you take a picture of me, I'll tear off your brassiere and strangle you with it, yes. <laughs> uh, which is awesome. Um, yeah. So then we go back and this is, this is the moment where you realize he can't stay. And he says earlier, if we had made love last night, I would have to go or you would have to go like we couldn't stay. Well, once he does this act of violence and this is my way, he can't, he can't stay there. Right. Um, Daniel has to. <laughs> and he goes back home and puts the birdhouse back up. So he begins writing all of the things that he kind of disrupted of this community. That was the first thing he broke when he got there was the birdhouse. And the father says he's going back to his world where he belongs. He knows it and you know it, too. And you get a moment where maybe Rachel is going to run away. She puts her veil down. She casts her veil off. She runs into his arms. They've got a hot makeout scene in the middle of the field, right during magic hour. She it, blasphemes all over Harrison yeah. Ford's face. Yes, but then we—that's when the car arrives, and we get this assault, raid, or siege sequence. And Josh, you earlier mentioned a history of violence. When we got here, I'm like, this is like Baccarat or Assault on Precinct 13 comes like right at the end of Days of Heaven. Uh, <laughs> it's a little little high noon thrown in there. There's that great scene where we've got we've got a, a shot of the the hill from the cameras at the bottom of the hill in the drive, and a car creeps over the the car carrying our three villains creeps over the the hill, and just as it creeps over, it stops and then backs away back over the hill, and then we cut to them getting out of the car, going into the trunk, getting all of the equipment, and then shows them walking away from the car down the drive as the camera moves up, shifts up. The great shot of the three of them walking in a line right next to one another over the hill, and just as the camera pans up, we see all of the farm. That mirrors one of the opening shots of the Amish kind of coming up through the tall grass, yep. walking like side by side, except they're coming towards the camera as opposed to away from it. What I thought was really, really nice about this last sequence, it is very thrilling, 
But, you know, Daniel says, are they going to kill you? You don't have your gun. Oh, I'm sorry. Samuel says that you have to run away to Daniel. So he has to go to the other potential father figure, but the one that is a part of the community and can maintain protection and peace. And John is left without his tools of enforcing law. He doesn't have his gun at that time. So he has to like MacGyver the Amish farm technology and kill people with grain silos and stuff, which was awesome. Um, he does get a shotgun back in time to smoke Danny Glover. But um, yes. I, th- I thought it was really it was a really nice thing that it was like he finally got acclimated to this community. And then that's when he's able to like use the to, to like home alone the area um, to deal with them. And then how does he best Schaefer? What's that final showdown? How's that play out? Um, yeah, so he Schaefer has the gun and the whole community arrives because they rang the dinner bell. Uh, yep, Samuel Samuel who was who was told to go to Daniel Daniels actually comes back and Eli signals him to ring the bell. Another great moment where words aren't spoken. Although I think he yes. does. Briefly he he utters some whispers something. Well, they should have lit beacons because then Vigo could have come in and say <laughs> The beacons are lit! Gondor calls for aid. That's all. He starts uh, <laughs> ringing that bell, and yeah, they all start coming out of the like at the beginning. They all start yeah, coming yeah. out of the fields. Mm-hmm. And and why does this work? Why why does the community arriving overcome Schaefer? They don't have weapons. Well, he's uh, doesn't want to shoot all of them. He, what, what are you, what are you to, he can't. He can't. Well, that's what he says. He's like, "What are you going to do? Are you going to shoot me? Are you going to shoot her? Are you going to shoot the little kid? Like, what you're going to you're going to kill all these people? You think you're going to get away with this? So the power and the strength of the community, um, the agrarian non-violently community. exactly non-violently beats the gun the single gun the power of a bunch of people beats a single gun yeah. that's enough enough put the gun down right um and it's great i think it's a very satisfying ending and climax especially for a way of resolving a lot of the conflicts that we saw established earlier in the movie then the denouement is this where you guys thought it was going to go what the the denouement is what the the birdhouse and then he just like leaves right yeah yeah so how do how do things get tied up right like with with the romance with the father figure problem with the law problem well there's a shot where like Kelly McGillis watches John Books sitting beside Samuel and he like pats him on the head mm-hmm. and then she kind of like watches him drive away right yeah so she's got her veil back on it's a recommitment to the community there okay. he's with Daniel seemingly whispers something to him Samuel what did I say. Samuel, you said Daniel. Oh, sorry, Samuel. Daniel. Thank you. Uh, seemingly whispers something to him. Is kind of choked up. Um, he had a choice to have a family. He had that opportunity, but he also knows that it just wasn't going to work because that's not his way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this idea that like your community forms you into the type of person you are up until a certain point, and the movie seems to suggest that you can't actually, you have to like sacrifice everything, or you can't actually change who you are which I thought was kind of an interesting way for the movie to take because it seemed to be, at least for me, going all the way down the line of like, he's just going to replace her dead husband. And that's not what happens. At the end, then, she's watching from behind the window, behind the threshold, and he walk- He has to walk away down the house. And I was getting major John Wayne at the end of Searcher's vibes, right? Yes. Yeah, I was thinking that. That this, yeah. is, this is now the threshold of civilization that you, as a lawman, actually can't, you don't belong here. Um, and then he drives out and kind of passes Daniel on the way in. I think it's a really, really nice ending. I, and the credits roll as the car drives away. Mm-hmm. I do yeah. love the fact that no dialogue is spoken between uh, Book and Rachel. There's the moment he comes back to the house. He's at the porch. And as you said, she comes to the threshold. She steps out onto the porch. And they just they give each other looks. And yeah. they 
in the moment, you understand everything. Everything that you just said, you understand without needing them to speak. And I love the fact that we chose to do it that way. And um, I, I've read in preparing for today's uh, episode recording that the studio wanted more explanation because the studio mm. is not satisfied with the fact that you've got your two romantic leads who don't end up together. So what's the explanation? And Weir goes, you don't need an explanation. It, it all speaks for itself. I mm-hmm. love that choice because yeah. uh, it, I think the scene really works really well without needing any exposition. Mm-hmm. Um, I have just a couple of things. I th- thought there was really nice irony of like they're in Philadelphia and it's the city of brotherly love, <laughs> but it ends up being sort of anything but that. And when they come in, he's like, we're Philly cops. And she's not at all like <laughs> comforted by this. We're Philly cops thing. Can I have a small law question? I did bump on this right before the shootout in the garage at like near, near the break into act two. Sure. Why would you not immediately get some sort of sworn affidavit from that kid? Because if you were going in to pursue justice, all you have is Harrison Ford saying that Samuel said that McPhee did it. So wouldn't it be like Harrison Ford could be making this up just to get back at McPhee for something? Well, uh, theoretically, I mean, there's a whole bunch of convoluted aspect to the police and the fact that Schaefer and McPhee are ready to get away with this. You assume not everybody in the police force is corrupt and on the same page with, with Schaefer and McPhee, right? And yet, uh, everyone's going to buy that they're after they're suddenly after book who's run off with the Amish with the Amish kid, the witness, and he's somehow involved in the murder. Like anybody else in the police force would believe that he's been, he's got the witness and the witness is perfectly fine around him. He doesn't seem to be pointing fingers at, at book. So they're taking quite a few liberties and I'm not sure Schaefer in real life, Schaefer and McPhee are not as, as um, Teflon, proof as as they would appear in the movie um they could do that if you were talking about in real life sure you get an affidavit from the kid i mean at the same time he's around rachel and samuel so often the other side could argue that he's putting undue pressure potentially on the witness (laughs) okay yeah so um i mean they they could raise some argument like that again i i don't think in real life schaefer mcphee's position holds up very well yeah um but in this world the police obviously there has to be this this culture yeah, in which yeah. you don't go up against other police officers. And if right. you do, you pay the price because there are rules to be followed. Uh, Josh, something you commented on in, I think, really well and extensively in the Out of Africa section was the kind of racial politics of Out of Africa. And it was something that, for sure, it came up a little bit in Kiss the Spider Woman. It came up a lot in The Color Purple. This movie doesn't deal with it super prominently, but there's some kind of uncomfortable racial politics in the first act of the movie particularly with um when they're trying to find who it was that did the killing and all they have to go on is he's a little black guy and they go into that he's a big black guy i'm sorry you're right he's not a stumping yeah. he's a there you go. He's a big man uh and i'm talking about the scene in the bar i i want to read this charitably but it made me recoil a bit what did you make of, of like kind of the racial politics of that scene I understand reading racial politics into that because it is police rounding up a black man who they think may have committed a crime. But because they do have 
a reliable witness who says it was a black man. I didn't read too much into that. I think they're just okay. trying to find someone that fit the description personally. Okay. And like, so what they did is they, they, they rounded up the usual suspects, you know, yeah. like they, they're, you know, they're always like people known to police yeah. that they can't necessarily pin anything on at any given time. But like they're, they, they the police know they're out there uh, up to no good. So like they just went to one of those guys who kind of meet the description of the kid that they, you know, was the witness and just, you know, showed him to the kid. Hey, was this him? Okay, it wasn't. All right. Sorry. Okay. It, it, they, they were pretty rough with him, but, you know, yeah. too, um, probably a little too rough, but uh, that, that didn't really bump me okay. too terribly bad. Okay. It, it, I mean, it bums, it bums you, I think, a little bit just because of the perception of the scene. But, yeah, exactly. To Josh's point, look, we they already know the victim is a police officer, right? So as far as looking for your, your assailant, um, you're going to start by looking at people who might have motive against the police or maybe even particular mm-hmm. this particular police officer. And so based on the kid's description, they've got an idea of who could be mm-hmm. behind it, which is why um, it is an unusual scene. You take the witness who's this kid, you take his mom, they're both Amish, you yeah. take him in the back, yeah. back of the police car, drive him around a seedier part of Philadelphia. Yeah. We're going to drag, we want to we want to throw this guy in, in, in your face and yeah. let you confirm whether or not he's the guy. And do, do you think it's plot material or am I, re- again, trying to read racial politics into something where it might not be there? Um, the mustache white guy gets grain siloed to death. Schaefer lives. It's Danny Glover that gets just blown away by a shotgun. I'd rather get blown away by a shotgun than get suffocated by grain siloed. I was going to say the grain, the grain <laughs> siloed is pretty bad. That's, a, <laughs> that's, that's fair. Yeah. That's, that's fair. tough. That's a tough beat. That's fair. That that's fair. Okay. Um, to me, I, I, I've read that they when they filmed that scene, they actually had to, um, they had to build in a, a, a source of oxygen and air in the bottom. So that the actor could retrieve it as they actually dumped all of that grain on top of the oh, actor. God. So uh. when Harrison Ford jumps in looking for the the um, the gun after he's already killed the guy, the actor is just there under the pile of grain <laughs> the whole time. Uh, Josh, you had one more thing. Yeah, um, we kind of talked at the top about like uh, our awareness of this movie before watching it for the podcast and. It, What's your guys' take on like the the cultural footprint of this movie? Did you think this has like a think, think there's a lot of awareness of this movie or because uh, I, I have a take on this? It's cultural footprint. Do you think it has much of one? I I think it's it's fairly minor. I think it's known as kind of the Harrison Ford protects an Amish kid movie. Uh, I think it's a dad movie, big time. I mean, mm-hmm. my dad likes it, yeah. but it kind of has the marking markings of a dad movie. I have a colleague who I just kind of mentioned that I was watching this and spoke very highly about it and in very precise detail about the like police department scene where you know he he sees Danny Glover in the newspaper and I was kind of like whoa okay um so that's my way of saying I think maybe among adult men it's it's also the way in which it's kind of a western but I wouldn't necessarily call it iconic I I think as I was watching it particularly like watching it kind of the second time is I think this I have no basis for this take, but I think this might be overshadowed a little bit by The Fugitive, hmm. which came out oh, sure. eight years later. And there's like an awful lot of similarities between the two. Uh, first of all, The Fugitive was also nominated for Best Picture, nominated for eight Oscars. And, but it, the difference is this Fugitive made $370 million yep. in, in 1993 money, which has got to be like $600 million nowadays. The Fugitive was an enormous, enormous hit. But both movies, you know, feature Harrison Ford uh, on the run from the law in some sense. In the wake of a murder, like a murder takes place and Harrison Ford has to go on the run from the law. Um, in one case, 
he, he's on different sides of the law in the two movies, but he is on the run from the law. And in both movies, he has righteousness on his side. Mm-hmm. He's in the right. Mm-hmm, right. And he has to go on this journey to uh, bring about justice in the face of corruption. And he has to reveal a conspiracy um, or cover up in both movies. And, um, and in both in both movies, uh, the, mur- the murder that takes place in the starting movie is a murder that goes wrong. You know, in the fugitive, it's because they they got the wrong victim, and in this, it's because uh, there was a witness they didn't know about. Mm-hmm. And so, like, th- and they're both like kind of you know chase slash hunting movies, and like I think the similarity there, the fugitive casts a much longer shadow than witness does, and because they're similar enough, I think that the fugitive kind of like stole the thunder from witness a little bit because the fugitive has an enormous enormous cultural footprint in my mind, and that's partially because it made so much money, mm-hmm. but. And so, like, Witness may be just kind of like the forgotten younger brother of the fugitive a little bit. Sure. How does that strike? How does that take strike? That's an interesting take. Yeah. Okay. I can that. I certainly wouldn't push back on it, given... I mean, yeah, the fugitive also, to your point, that didn't just make more money. It's also more action-packed, right? And you've got... It is. You've got a couple of big stars in that film carrying it at that time. Um, yeah, Witness is... As to TJ's point, yeah, it's probably just the Harrison Ford protects an Amish kid movie. And so people are aware of it, but how many people have seen it? I don't know. That's I'm not even sure to your point, TJ. I'm not sure that there are that many like adult males who have watched this movie. I think there's like a population of people out there who love this movie, and then everyone else is just like, oh yeah, that exists. You switched the samples, and you doctored your research. <laughs> that's from the future. Yes. I also did know that's, Harris, that's Harrison Ford's yelling, pointy, uh, righteous moment. <laughs> I also didn't know I had a time. I forgot about this. Uh, it has a cultural life for Kelly McGillis burying her breasts as well. That's true. Yeah, yeah she uh, does. She does do that. Yeah. So let's get to the boilerplate questions. How does this compare to other Best Picture nominees? I, I didn't like this as much as I thought I would, maybe. And like, I mean, I liked it a lot, but like, it is kind of quaint to see like a movie like this on for Best Picture. I think. Like, I, I think you said earlier that this would be a streamer if it was made today, and maybe star Liam Neeson, like. It, it it's it's extremely well made, like easy sell. Like I mean, I, I said earlier, it has a good elevator pitch, and it's a it's a star driven movie, which isn't the kind of thing you see now for Best Picture nowadays. I guess um, I don't know, but it, it's it's like a really competent, uh, well structured, well acted. Uh, you know, I don't know, but it it doesn't strike me as like oh that's an Oscar movie for sure. Mm. It's just like what's an Oscar movie has evolved so much, mm-hmm. and this also stands out against like. Out of Africa and the Color Purple, which I think are very Oscar-y movies, or at least are trying to be Oscar-y movies. And this isn't. This is trying to be just like a a taut, you know, neo-noir thriller. And it, it is that. And it's not something I usually associate with Oscar fair. I um, had a farm in Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah, you did. Um, but I do I do like it. But uh, it, I'm, I'm surprised. This, this isn't the kind of movie I would think would be known for Best Picture. So it's hard to compare it to other Best Picture movies because mm-hmm. it's so different than them, I guess. Yeah, Ken, your thoughts on this? Um, I'm going to separate. I, I I do like this film quite a bit, but I'm going to separate that from my analysis from as a Best Picture nominee. I think that there's a place for this film over time. I think it, a film like this could get nominated. I don't I don't mean this just because it, it's Amish and we're you know it. We just look. Women Talking came out last year, and so automatically that jumped to my mind, particularly early on in this film when we're being shown the Amish community. Um, so I don't think it's that this film wouldn't be nominated for Best Picture today. I think certain things have to line up for it to get that nomination. 
Um, this is certainly like a, it's not going to be like one of the five films everyone knows for a fact is going to get nominated, right? But this could be, this could squeak in there as one of the 10 nominees nowadays. Does it deserve it? I actually quite like this film and we'll, we'll get to this in the recap episode of the five that we've talked about that were nominated in 1985. Um, I, I, I gotta say, I'm okay with this being here. Um, I don't mind it. And part of that might be compare just direct comparison to the other four. Um, I'm fine with it here. I, I really am. I, I don't, I don't think it's a, a lesser film. I think it's a smaller film by comparison. It is. And yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with the audience and the voters at the Academy reacting to this movie so positively. Yeah. Let me be clear. I said that I didn't like this as much as I thought it would, but let me, let me be clear. And we'll, we'll talk about this in the recap episode for sure. But like, uh, this was a breath of fucking fresh air after <laughs> the other four movies we watched for the 1985 series. Uh, that was like, eating a salad for four straight movies and then a big bite of a cheeseburger for witness i'm like hell yeah this is what this is this is what i need and what i want um so i'm very glad it's here mm-hmm. for sure um i i don't I think i've seen enough movies from 1985 to say that's like this is among the five best movies of the year but like probably um I can think of a few other movies I've seen from 1985 that I would prefer to see nominated for Best Picture over The Out of Africa's and The Color Purples or whatever, and we can talk about that, that next week. But um, I think this is – I'm glad this is here. Yeah. Well, great. What do you think, TJ? The the other last question is typically would it be nominated today, which you guys already – What do you think if it should be I, nominated? I'm getting to in, that. I'm getting to that. Okay. I was just going to say I'm not going to ask that last question just because you guys kind of already answered that in both of your answers. Um, I'm delighted to see this nominated because I think it's – uh, you might have described it earlier as kind of like quaint or small, perhaps. Um, I think it's it's tight. It is modest in its aspirations, but it does them very, very well. Um, I think it's very well written, like yeah. incredibly well written. I think the directing is the the things that they're able to find in between the lines. I think are are sharp. Um, I like the pol- police aspect of it. The romance worked for me. Um, I was I was delighted actually that this is a best picture nominee. Again, I said that like it's hard to compare to other best picture nominees because it doesn't strike me as the kind of movie that's often nominated best picture, but like should be. It should sure. be. I w- I would love for more movies like this to to make it into the best picture what, field. Yeah, what I appreciated about it is it's about things, but it's not a message yeah. movie. No. And I think a lot of the times best picture films are pretty obvious message movies or are going for something in the zeitgeist. And this feels kind of timeless in that sense, I think. Yeah, and like, as we kind of mentioned with other movies that we've talked about, uh, being like One for the Cuckoo's Nest or No Country for Old Men, uh, it's very entertaining on its face if you just take everything at face value and like only kind of engage with it on the plot level of like this murder cover-up that has to be resolved. It's still very engaging, very entertaining on that level. And but then to your point, TJ, the, all the themes you dug out, the contrast, like you can dig more and more and engage with it on a deeper level if you so choose. But it's also just like kind of works at whatever level you want to engage with it on, which I think is a sign of a really great movie. Excellent, uh, Ken. Any final thoughts? I'm with Josh. I kind of wish more films like this were were produced. Um, unfortunately, I think it's the kind of film that is tougher to get made today because as, as far as how much this would cost. In the modern day and age, um, getting the getting the, the wherewithal to to put it together. I mean, this, not cheap to crush someone with a grain silo. No, no, it's, that costs money. It, it should be noted this film got pushed back after it was released um, by the by the Amish community. 
ironically, of course, the Amish community didn't see the film, but they're aware of the contents. They're aware that there's there's nudity in it. There's violence. Mm. I mean, the descriptions. The, Amish nudity. The warning that comes with this film, the fact that there's violence, there's pornography there or, or i should say Por- nudity. pornography not, not <laughs> pornography but nudity there's what, there's what movie did you want there's serious uh, profanity and it's like yes <laughs> and we're gonna watch it we're, we're watching an amish movie and they didn't really like the connection even though the amish were involved in the production this was filmed in lancaster county they were they were carpenters on the film um so so they were present but they couldn't be in the film, and of course they didn't see it. But there was some pushback on how everything was depicted, and the fact that you've got Amish people depicted in a film with all of this stuff that Amish, the Amish community is so staunchly against. Um, today, I, I think there might there might be some pushback that comes in pre-production. So I don't know that this film gets made the way it was made then, um, with so much cooperation from the the local community. Uh, but yeah, I wish I wish we saw more of these films, more films like this. It's it's a really solid film, and I'm glad we uh, got a chance to watch it. All right, I'm gonna shut it down here. Uh, thank you for joining us again this week. Hopefully, you enjoyed Witness, and thank you for getting through the 1985 series with us. <laughs> um, if you want to reach out and interact with us, you can email us at seriousfilmpeople at gmail.com. You can find us on TikTok at at Serious Film People Podcast. We're on Twitter at Serious Film PPL. And we mm-hmm. just started a Patreon. So Woo. give us Well, your we started money. a Patreon a long time ago by the time you're actually listening to this, but uh, in the time of we're recording this, we just started a Patreon. Yes, um, where there is extra bonus content if you would like to hear more from We Serious Film People. So that's all from us. Uh, please always remember you be careful out there among them English. Have a great week. See you later. That's our theme song.